If you would, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, John chapter 19, as, uh, as we continue on in the Gospel of John this morning. Last week, we saw Jesus brought to Pilate, and uh, the opening verses of chapter 19 continue to unfold the drama that plays out there as Jesus is before Pilate. I'll begin reading in John chapter 19, verse 1. John writes under the inspiration of the Spirit. And he says, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, say, Hail, King of the Jews! And to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you. Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. Now, we saw last week how the Jewish leaders had brought Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, and how they attempted to paint Jesus as a threat to Rome because he claimed to be the Messiah, the Christ, and therefore, uh, by implication, a king. We saw how Pilate wasn't taking the bait set before him. He didn't see Jesus as a threat. We saw that he tried to release Jesus by playing to the crowd and invoking that tradition that a prisoner be released to them at the time of the Passover. But that plan had failed because the Jewish chief priest had stirred up the crowds to ask for Barabbas, who is a robber, or as Luke calls him, Luke 23, a murderer and one who had taken part in an insurrection. They cried out for Barabbas to be released to them instead. And so what we see here then in chapter 19 
is Pilate's attempt at taking a different, a different tack on this issue. He couldn't get Jesus released the first way he set about it, and so he tries again. In our terms, we could say he wanted to rough Jesus up a little bit and hope that that would satisfy the Jews as sufficient punishment. So that's what he does. He takes a man whom he still believes to be innocent and has him roughed up by the Roman soldiers. Luke records his words in Luke 23, 14 through 16. He said, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. I can't speak for you, but that sounds like pretty good governance to me, right? Pretty fair and reasonable man. Let's just punish an innocent man to gratify the mob. We'll stop short of killing him and release him when it's all done. It's all good. This is, this is fine. Of course not. This is not fine. This is unjust. This is cruel. And it shows the weakness of Pilate. A good governing official will do what is right, regardless of the consequences, regardless of what the crowd demands. And Pilate showed himself too weak to govern in such an upright fashion. And thus begins the beating and the mockery which our Lord Jesus Christ suffered. He was beaten with a whip, which the, the leather ends of which would have been, had tied in them sharp pieces of perhaps bone, metal, glass, something to that effect, um, to make the whip more effective at ripping open the skin. And this, beloved, this flogging, was for our salvation. Isaiah expressly says, Isaiah 53, 5, by his scourging. We are healed. It wasn't only the crucifixion that was the means of our salvation, but even, even this suffering here is for us, for our salvation. This is part of those sufferings by which our sins are purged and by which we are healed. Even in this, he was taking upon him the punishment that we deserved because of our sins. And in keeping with the Jewish charges that were brought against him, these Roman soldiers mocked him as a king and crowned him by twisting together a crown of thorns and placing it on his head. And no doubt they did so in such a way that the thorns pierced his skin and the blood ran down all over his head, all over his face. They gave him a purple robe, purple being the color of royalty. And these rough Gentile soldiers began to say, king, Hail, King of the Jews, and to slap him in the face. This too is what we deserved. But Jesus took it for us. Jesus had foretold all of this in Luke 18, 32 to 33, when he told the disciples, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and mistreated, and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. Now, as we think about this scourging and this ridicule that was endured by our Lord Jesus Christ, we need to be reminded afresh of the magnitude of God's wrath against sin. God truly hates sin, and God truly is angry with sinners. He is a righteous judge and has indignation every day, as we find in Psalm 7 verse 11. And here we see Jesus beginning to suffer that wrath and indignation. As sinners, we could never cleanse ourselves. The 
blood of bulls and goats are insufficient to take away sins, the anger of God against sin is real. The wages of sin really is death. And we see that anger and the beginnings of that wrath poured out because of sin upon Christ. We see the beginnings of it here. And in seeing God's anger against sin, we must realize afresh the the hideousness and the ugliness of sin. How filthy and how abhorrent must be that thing which demanded the scourging and the crucifixion of the true spotless lamb, the sinless son of God. Sin is filthy and sin is abhorrent and we see that here in the fact that our Jesus had to suffer in this way on account of it. The question for us then is whether sin is actually filthy to us. Is it filthy to you? Sometimes, or in regard to some sins, I think we would surely say the answer is yes. But sometimes, and in regard to some sins, we may treat them as if they were not actually filthy, as if they might be coddled and indulged in, like it's no big deal. This, beloved, is wrong. This is wicked. We must recognize sin for what it is and seeing the punishment that it caused to fall upon Christ And we must turn away from it. One writer rightly observed that only the blood of Christ could wash away our sin and cleanse the conscience from sin. Consequently, it is indeed right and brings forth for us the extreme need that we guard ourselves with the most intense zeal so that we do not stain ourselves anew with sin. So we see the the hideous nature of sin here. And we also see the amazing love of God for sinners. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Christ suffered this scourging and mockery for us while we were yet sinners. This is what the love of God looks like. And so we read in 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So Pilate roughs Jesus up and then says to the Jewish leaders, Behold, I am bringing Him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in Him. And then Jesus comes out all bloody and beaten, dressed in the mock royal regalia, And Pilate says, Behold the man. Now at this point, Pilate may well be ridiculing both Jesus himself and also the Jewish leaders. He might be ridiculing Jesus because of his claims and now the apparent weakness of his status and then also ridiculing the Jewish leaders for viewing a man like Jesus to be such a threat as they were claiming that he was. Whatever Jesus' claims may have been in regard to being a king, it seems clear to Pilate, at least, that he poses no threat to anyone. Pilate is hoping that this whole thing could be over now. Jesus is beaten, he's been punished, he's bloody, he's been ridiculed, and in the eyes of all earthly mortals looking on, he had been made to look ridiculous. But the chief priests and the officers would not let the matter rest. They want not merely blood, but they want death by crucifixion. And when they demand that, when they cry out, crucify, 
Pilate responds again with sarcasm. He says, you take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. Pilate's not suggesting that they could actually crucify him without Roman approval. They could not. But then in verse 7, the Jews tell the real reason why they wanted Jesus to be killed. They say, we have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Now, that law to which they're referring is probably that of Leviticus 24, 16, where we are told, moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the alien as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Now, in working through the gospel, we've, we've seen, especially in connection with John 5, 18, that the Jews of the first century rightly understood that Jesus' claim to be the Son of God was, in fact, a claim to be equal with God. They, they understood that. When Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, they understood him to be making himself equal with God. And as, as John 5 continues to unfold, Jesus says, yes, you got it right. You, you understand correctly that I am equal to God. You must honor the Son as you honor the Father. And indeed, this is what Jesus is claiming. And if any mere man were to make that claim, that would be, in fact, a violation of Leviticus 24, 16. But Jesus is not a mere man. Though he is man, he's actually the Word made flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God and man. And so here in verse 7, the the real reason for the Jewish animosity has now come out. According to verse 8, Pilate is even more afraid. Not because he's thinking about the claims of Jesus in Jewish terms, but he's thinking about them rather more likely in Roman terms. He's no doubt heard of this kind of thing before, where you have some kind of a divine man, a man who's specially gifted by the divine in in certain ways, and this man is one whom Pilate has just had scourged and mocked. This might not be such a good thing if he really is the Son of God if he really is who he claims to be. So he tries to engage Jesus and ask him where he's from, but Jesus is not interested in talking. We'll come back to uh, to verses 10 and 11, Lord willing, later in the sermon. But notice here now the the weakness of Pilate, how he's just driven by, by public opinions and by the threats of the public. Even after talking to Jesus in verses 10 and 11, he still wants to release Jesus But the Jews are kind of backing him into a corner and continuing to to tighten the screws and and twist Pilate's arm. They say, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar, for everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Caesar might well be hearing from these Jewish leaders if Pilate doesn't do what he is being asked to do. And Pilate certainly didn't want any reports of misgovernance reaching the ears of Caesar, who had apparently a reputation of being suspicious when, uh, when ill reports went out about his subordinates. And so step by step, Pilate slowly turns his back on what he knows to be just and right, and he gives the people of the crowd the very thing that they wanted. Mark 15, 15 explicitly says that he wanted to satisfy the crowd. Now this is bad news. Pilate certainly was not a believer, but he understood the situation. He knew that Jesus was an innocent man. And he, he even, as we've seen, put up some resistance and gave the, the Jewish leaders some pushback. 
But at the end of the day, the pressure of the mob was just too much for him, and as such, he gave his sanction to the gravest injustice of all time. So in the end, he comes out there on the pavement on the, the day of preparation for the Passover, which is to say uh, the day before the Sabbath. The other, the other Gospels make it, make it clear that, uh, that this day of preparation is the day before the Sabbath. And so when John calls it the, the preparation for the Passover, he's speaking that this was the, the day of preparation on that Passover week. And so it is at this time then that Pilate ultimately hands Jesus over to be crucified. Now... Now, we can look at Pilate and what he does here, and we could, we could shake our heads, right? Bad stuff. And that's okay. It's all right to recognize bad behavior when you read about it. That's certainly better than reading this story about Pilate's bad behavior and not recognizing. So it's, it's good to recognize what's going on here and to shake your head. But what about you? Or what about me? How are you doing when it comes to standing up to the mob? How are you doing when it comes to standing up to the pressure which the world puts on those who live in the world? The natural pressure which the world puts on us is an attempt to conform us into its image, to think as it thinks, to approve of what it approves, to disapprove of what it disapproves, to behave as it behaves, to celebrate what it celebrates, and so on. Now, I know that we may like to think of ourselves as, as brave and bold and as those who would willingly stand up for what is right and true, regardless of who or how many people were pushing back against us. But let's be honest about this. Standing alone against the crowd is really hard. It's swimming upstream. It's bicycling into the wind. It's hard. Pilot failed miserably at this. He was not able to stand up against the mob in his day. On the one hand, he wanted to please them. He wanted to get along. And on the other hand, he understood that there were threatening overtures in what they were saying when they said, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. And I think we can understand the pressure that Pilate was feeling. On the one hand, it's nice to get along with people. And so to that end... We often will make what accommodations we can in order to get along. And then on the other hand, when our position or livelihood or physical well-being is threatened, those threats sometimes have a way of ensuring compliance with whatever the mob might be demanding at that particular moment. Now, certainly we could, we could run down a list of some of those hot-button issues in our time, which the mob of the world would like to compel your uh, compliance with them, think abortion, homosexuality, the transgender agenda, and so on, the mob of this world is either already or else likely will exert pressure on you to conform and comply to their image, either in, in these respects or who knows what, uh, what else might be out there, all kinds of, all kinds of things. And if we're going to be faithful to Christ, we can't go along with the mob. And so what do we do when we're confronted with this pressure that's being exerted against us in some way or another to compromise with the world, to call evil good and good evil, or else by implication, giving the appearance that we're calling evil good and good evil? Well, what, what does the scripture say? What, what can we draw from the word of God to help us in this? 
Well, we read together this morning from Ephesians 4, where Paul says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And so Paul is telling us there that we're, we're not to walk along with, with the world. And so we know that we're not supposed to do that, but that's great. Now, how do we, how do we not do that? What is there to help us? Well, Paul goes on just a few verses later, Ephesians 4, to 24, and he says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, that's what we have to put off, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And so the point is, is that in order to handle these temptations rightly, we need to be operating with the correct value system. Borrow Paul's words in Ephesians 4.23, we have to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And that is to say that we have to see things differently. We have to value things differently than the world does. And thus Paul says to the Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so if we're not viewing the world and analyzing the data of the world with a new mind, we're going to end up in trouble. And so what is this new mind of which Paul speaks? Well, a new mind is primarily the gift of the Holy Spirit when we are saved. And so we find in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. But even after we're saved, we still have this exhortation to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, to be renewed in the, in the spirit of our mind. And so if that is going to take place, we have to, to watch out and be careful about what we're feeding into our mind. If we're feeding our minds with the junk of the world, we can pretty well guess what the outcome of that is going to be. We won't be renewed in the spirit of our minds and we'll be more inclined to walk as the Gentiles walk. But on the other hand, if we're continually feeding on the pure milk of the word, continually coming back to the truth as it is in Jesus, then our minds will be renewed. And then when we look at the world, we'll be able to analyze it with the correct value of judgment. We'll be able to recognize that it is worth it to continually put off the old self and put on the new self. When we understand the world from God's perspective and not from the world's perspective that is continually bombarding us. And so, in order to stand up to the mob, we have to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And to do this, we have to feed on the scripture. We have to ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. This is how we have to arm ourselves for this fight. Just think, think of Ephesians, Ephesians 6, right? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the, the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness. And then what, is, what does Paul say to do? He says to, uh, to put, on the, put on the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and so on. We are to be renewed and we are to fight using the weapons that our Lord has provided for us. And 
In doing that, we have to recognize that the ways of the world ultimately are, are worthless. We have to see that, that there is truth in what Paul says when he calls the, the ways of the Gentiles the futility of their mind. Futility means it's pointless. It gets, it gets nowhere. It accomplishes nothing. And from the eternal perspective, it certainly does accomplish nothing and only ends in destruction. And closely connected with that is we need to be reminded of the thing which strengthened Moses in the face of Pharaoh's anger. Because Moses obviously had a lot of people with him when he went out of Egypt, but these people were despised. They were, they were slaves. Pharaoh was the one who had the power, the army, the chariots, the authority, and so on. And we're told in Hebrews 11.27, By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. He didn't fear the wrath. This is good. How do we arm ourselves with what Moses had? For he endured as seeing him who is unseen. That was the key for for Moses in standing up to, to Pharaoh. Not fearing the wrath of the king was seeing him who is unseen. We want to walk faithfully in this world, despite the machinations and the fear-mongering of the mob of the world, we have to keep our eyes on him who is unseen. And that's not to say that bad things won't happen to us in the world, or even that we will physically survive our resistance to the world. Some Christians have not, right? Some Christians have suffered martyrdom for the cause of Christ. We know not whether some of us may one day do the same. We, we don't know. Sometimes believers do survive their physical resistance to the world. Sometimes they don't. But one way or the other, we have to keep going by seeing him who is unseen. And we have to remember the words of Jesus to the church in Smyrna, Revelation 2.10. He says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death. I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death, Jesus promises, and I will give you the crown of life. We do that by seeing him who is unseen, by arming ourselves for the conflict with the weapons that God provides. So we, we see here in the text that we have to resist the mob. We have to resist the tide of public opinion. We also see here in this text that earthly authority is given by God. And we see this particularly in the words of Jesus in verse 11 when he said to Pilate, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. And so the authority that Pilate had over Jesus was a received authority. Now, obviously on the human level, Pilate had received that authority from Rome. But Jesus is not talking about Pilate receiving his authority from the Roman government. Jesus is speaking of the fact that God rules over all and therefore delegates earthly authority to whom he desires. This is the truth that is expressed in Daniel 4.17 where we read that the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes. This is what Paul says in Romans 13.1, that there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. It doesn't mean that earthly authorities are good. It doesn't mean they always do what's right. But it does mean that they are established by God and that they receive their authority from Him. 
But even though they receive authority from the Lord, that does not in any way give them license to abuse that authority. Pilate, as we see here, used his authority as governor in a sinful way. And many others have done the same. The scripture is clear that we owe our obedience to earthly authorities so long as they do not command us to do what is sinful or that they do not forbid us from doing what is right. So Peter says, 1 Peter 2, 3, excuse me, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And it is at this point, this point of fearing God and honoring the king, both simultaneously, that we see that the Jews in this text had lost their way. When Pilate asked them if he should crucify their king, they responded by saying, we have no king but Caesar. And in saying that, they were, they were probably speaking more truth than they were aware when they said it. These men, uh, as we saw, had followed in the ancient footsteps of their nation. More than a thousand years prior to that day, the nation of Israel had made that demand to Samuel. As we saw in 1 Samuel chapter 8, they wanted a king to judge us like all the nations. And the Lord's verdict on this request was that in so doing, they have rejected me from being king over them. Chrysostom in the ancient church observed, successes have terrible power to cast down or draw aside those who do not take heed. Thus the Jews, who at first enjoyed the influence of God, sought the law of royalty from the Gentiles, and in the wilderness after the manna, remembered the onions. In the same way here, refusing the kingdom of Christ, they invited to themselves that of Caesar. They refused the authority of Christ and they took upon them instead the authority of an earthly government. And they said this in an exclusive way, right? They said, we have no king except Caesar. Now this is what happens when earthly authority becomes absolute. It is a rejection of the kingship of God. When anyone claims ultimate allegiance to any earthly authority, they are rejecting the kingship of God. And by their actions, it is clear that the Jews were rejecting God as their king. They were rejecting their Messiah that was sent to them by God the Father. And making this implicit thing that their actions were doing, they made that explicitly clear. And they said, we have no king but Caesar. And while we are commanded to both fear God and honor the king, the ultimate authority always belongs to God. And so if push comes to shove, we must say with the apostles, Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. Now, for us, we have a great blessing that many times we can do both. We can obey God and honor the king. But when any government gets too big for its britches, it can overstep its legitimate authority and demand the absolute obedience of its subjects. This is true of 
communism. This was true in the days of National Socialism in, in Germany. The uh, Nazi judge Roland Freisler expressed this quite clearly during the trial of the, the Christian uh, Count James Helmuth von Moltke in 1945. And uh, he said this, he said, only in one respect does National Socialism resemble Christianity. We demand the whole man. From whom do you take your orders? From the other world or from Adolf Hitler? Where lie your loyalty and your faith? That was a, that was a Nazi speaking to a Christian. He says, in this respect, in this respect alone, is Christianity like National Socialism. We demand the entirety of you. But even in those worst case scenarios, when we're confronted, God forbid any of us should be confronted with that, and we might say especially in those worst case scenarios, we can still draw comfort from the words of Jesus here when he says to Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Indeed, is this not exactly what we see in Revelation 13 as the, the wicked work of the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth are described? And so in Revelation 13:7, this is what we find. It was given to him, given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And we might ask, well, who, who did the giving? Who gave these terrible beasts authority over the saints to make war with them and to conquer them? Who gave them this authority over every tribe and tongue and people and nation? Well, ultimately, this authority was given by God. And this is why Paul speaks in 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12 about... Uh, sending upon the wicked a deluding influence so that they will believe the lie that all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Even in the worst case scenario, that authority is given to the wicked. Even then, and especially then, it is good for God's people to remember that all authority is given by God because what that means is that though the world may seem to have gotten out of control and evil is breaking forth in every way imaginable, what this means is it's actually still under control. Evil is still on a leash because Almighty God is hanging on to that leash. This is good news because it means that God is still orchestrating all things according to the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1.11 means that even then he's working all things for the good of his people, even then, when things are chaotic and seem out of control, God is still going to bring every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It means that we can keep going with confidence in the worst of times. It was said by the Protestant reformer Theodore Beza that it belongs to the church of God to receive blows rather than to inflict them. But... She is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. The church takes a beating, the hammers wear out, but the anvil remains. And so we can draw comfort from the words of Christ that no earthly authority has authority over us unless it has been given to them from above. It's all in God's hands. And this brings us then to our third point, which is that all sins are not the same. After testifying to Pilate that his authority over him had been given from above, Jesus follows this up by saying in the latter part of verse 11, For this reason, he who delivered me to you 
has the greater sin. Now, it's not immediately clear why Jesus says, for this reason, and how Jesus connects Pilate's derived authority in the earlier part of the statement, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you above, and how Jesus takes that and connects it with the fact that the one who handed Jesus over to Pilate has the greater sin. It seems that what Jesus means here is that even though Pilate has authority over Jesus and is going to deliver him over to be crucified, nevertheless, despite Pilate's authority, he's not the one who is trying to engineer things to bring Jesus down. He's not the one who had maliciously orchestrated Jesus' arrest and is now pushing for his crucifixion. Caiaphas was, was doing, doing that and trying to pull the strings, so to speak, and therefore his sin was greater. And also perhaps, as, as Calvin put it, that they were constraining a divinely appointed government to comply with their lawless desires. In other words, they're trying to back Pilate into a corner, trying to twist his arm, and uh, Pilate complies... That's wrong, but they were the ones who were backing him into a corner. They were the ones who were demanding Jesus' death, and their sin was greater. And we're reminded here that though every sin in and of itself is damnable, all sins are not equal. This is why Jesus can speak here of someone having a greater sin. This is why Jesus can speak in places like Matthew 10, 14 and 15, Matthew 11, 21 through 24, of how the judgment that was coming upon Sodom and Gomorrah would be more bearable for those cities uh, than for the cities which rejected the preaching of Christ and refused to believe in Jesus even after they saw his miracles. Jesus said that the judgment coming upon towns such as Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum would be worse than the judgment that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And the reason was because they had a greater accountability than Sodom and Gomorrah. They had seen greater miracles. They had heard the preaching of the Son of God, and they remained yet impenitent. Now, in making this distinction among sins, I've said this before, I'll say it again. I'm not suggesting that we should think of any sin as insignificant or any sin as small or as no big deal. I suggest no such thing. But what I would suggest is that perhaps we ought to think of sins in the category of large, extra large, and double extra large, if you will. We can't minimize any sin. And in order not to minimize any sin, we need to have these distinctions. And I think that we would actually be minimizing some sins if we treated all sins as equally heinous. And if you put some, some thought into this, I think you can, you can easily see what I mean. And this, this distinction among sins is, is historically Christian and even historically Protestant. I think uh, Article 27 of the Irish Articles, 1615, stated, stated it quite well when they said, All sins are not equal, but some are far more heinous than others. Yet the very least is of its own nature mortal, and without God's mercy makes the offender liable unto everlasting damnation. Similarly, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 83, asked, are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? The answer is given, some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. And I think uh, the Word of God recognizes this, as we've seen, Matthew 10, Matthew 11, John 19. I think if you look in the Old Testament law, uh, you see this as well. And uh, I think that the times in which we live might call for a bit, of, a bit of explanation on this point, because we live in an age that 
on the one hand, is, is egalitarian. The tendency is to, to level the playing field. If it's a sin, then it's a sin. Don't try making distinctions. Well, let's think about that for a minute. If you have an attitude of greed in your heart for a moment, is that actually as bad as going out and stealing a car? I knew a man once who uh, was told as a child that using a slang word in place of a curse word was just as bad as saying the actual word. And so the next time when something didn't go his way, he said the actual word, and he was uh, a bit surprised that the punishment was greater when he said the actual curse word instead of the slang for the curse word. And so on the one hand, sometimes we want to level the playing field. On the other hand, sometimes there can be a tendency to flip things around and make serious wickedness sound like a small thing. What we need to recognize is that any sin is sufficient to condemn us and send us to hell, and at the same time that some sins actually are extra large or double extra large, triple extra large, on down the list. Now, Pilate has, has rightly gone down in the gospel accounts, in the history of the church, in the Christian creeds, as a man who was in charge during Jesus' suffering. But as bad as that was, and that is horrible, horrific, it was not as bad as that of the chief priest who had put together and executed this plan to bring Jesus down. They conspired uh, long before Judas had come to them and offered to betray him. They had been, they'd been thinking, we've got we to get rid of this guy, we've got to get rid of him. Judas comes, offers to betray him, they pay him money, and then they, they arrest him, they, they put him on trial, they bring him before Pilate. They're the ones who were driving this whole thing. Pilate's sin here was one of weakness and ignorance, while that of the chief priest was a sin of calculated refusal to submit themselves to God the Father and to his Christ. Both are guilty and damnably so, but the chief priests had the greater sin. Now, now, what about us? Well, all of us have sins. All of us have sins that apart from the grace of God obtained through faith in Christ would damn us to hell. No one of us can claim innocence. Now, some of us have sins that would fit into the extra large category or the, the double XL category. Some of us perhaps are more culpable because we have more knowledge and therefore have sinned against greater light. Some of us are perhaps less culpable for some of the sins that we've done because those sins have been committed in ignorance. Some of us are more culpable because of the sins that we've committed. Some of us might be less culpable because of the sins that we have committed. Now, wherever, wherever you find yourself on that spectrum, and you're somewhere, you're somewhere on the spectrum, wherever you find yourself, do not be deceived. Let no one here think that their sins are so small that they can stand before God without being washed in the blood of Christ through faith. This is because any sin, no matter how small, is sufficient to condemn you for all of eternity. It was a true saying uh, by an evangelist hundreds of years ago, except your consciences be cleansed by the blood of Christ, you must all perish in the eternal fires. That is the bad news about our sins. It doesn't matter how big or how small we may think of them, except our consciences are cleansed by the blood of Christ, we perish in eternal fire. But don't be deceived on the other side of things either, because Satan would love to convince someone that they are too great of a sinner to be saved by Christ, that your sins, 
and your filthy past simply cannot be blotted out and forgiven because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And that is a lie. That comes from hell. That comes from Satan, the father of lies. Do not believe it. Scripture is clear. The Lord says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. It's Isaiah 1, 18. Scripture says, Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked man forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Similarly, Psalm 103, 11 through 13. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. The gospel is good news for all kinds of sinners. Because the message of the gospel is that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God sent his only begotten son into the world to become a sin offering for us. Him bearing in his own body the sins of his people on the tree. And that punishment which Christ took upon himself is sufficient for all of the sins that have been committed in the history of the world. His punishment was certainly sufficient for whatever your sins might be. He took the sins of his people on himself and bore their punishment so that they could be forgiven, cleansed, and be the recipients of his perfect righteousness. This is God's great plan of salvation for us. That no one think his sins are too small, but that he needs to go to Christ. And let no one think that his sins are too great, but that Christ will receive him. Christ will receive you. Let's praise God. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning as, uh, as, as sinners. We know that we are. And Lord, we, we praise you for sending Christ to the cross for us because of our sins so that we might be saved, cleansed, reconciled to you. We pray that you would strengthen us, that you would continually draw us to you, that we might receive strength, that we might always submit to you, that we might always follow you even when the tide of public opinion is against us. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us. We pray, Lord, that we would continually be cleansed by the blood of Christ. And we praise you for your great mercies to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.